Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ecolona, and this is Nashville. Today, we're going to have a conversation about the social construct of whiteness. Now, before you roll your eyes and reach to change the channel, hear me out. Race is not a biological truth. It's a social construct. Historically, race has been used to divide us human beings. So we focus more on our differences rather than our shared humanity. And because of whiteness being a social construct, you know, that thing has changed over time. Today, most people would say that Irish and Italian Americans are white. But a few hundred years ago, that would not be the case. Later this hour, we'll talk about how the concept of whiteness has developed here in Tennessee. But first, Christian nationalism has been on the rise this election season, and nationally right-wing candidates have been using Christian nationalist messaging. And this all happening here in Tennessee as well. Liam Adams is a religion reporter for the Tennessean. He's been following this trend, and he joins me now. Liam, welcome back, and thanks for being here. Thanks. It's great to be here again. All right. So let's start by understanding what Christian nationalism is. Can you give us a definition? Yeah. Christian nationalism uh, is a phrase that generally refers to this belief that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. Um, and so proponents of these views uh, sort of see contemporary political forces as a threat to some of those Christian ideals that they consider part of the nation's founding. Um, in the candidates that I was looking at in Tennessee, you'll see a lot of messaging around this idea of personal liberties and some of the issues they, you know, were focusing on uh, sort of heavily uh, focused on uh, cultural and religious issues. So whether that's school curricula or LGBTQ rights, um, I also saw messaging around public health guidelines and the Second Amendment. Um, I'll add that right before my recent story came out, uh, the Pew Research Center released results of a recent survey on Christian nationalism, and it found that 45% of Americans believe the U.S. should be a quote-unquote Christian nation. Mm. And among those respondents, uh, 28% uh, said they want the federal government to formally recognize that idea. So, you know, you tapped on some of the cultural issues that they're focusing on a lot for this how widespread has this become politically? Well, it's, um, I think the, the Pew Research Center survey offered sort of some numerical um, sort of, it offered helpful data, but there's also this sort of element of, you know, maybe some politicians are, uh, using this idea because it's popular among some voters. But then there are also, as uh, I sort of explored a little more in my story, this idea of those who are sort of true believers committed to this cause. Mm. Um, and so they're kind of, it's appealing to different kinds of people for different reasons. Okay, so how is this all playing out locally here? Yeah, um, my story, it uh, focused on a few uh, candidates, Republican candidates in Tennessee, who are promoting these ideas and focusing on these issues. 
the story, uh, sort of one of the, the main characters, if you will, of my story is uh, Andy Ogles, the Republican nominee for the 5th Congressional District, who, um, you know, I went to his uh, his primary election uh, campaign event back in August. And, you know, m- more than anything else, he was talking about God and America's Christian roots. But the that's not where Andy Ogles started. And so my story kind of looked at, um, you know, the the roots of that and and some of the issues that, uh, you know, sort of Andy pivoted around. We have some of tape from that congressional district primary in August, his victory speech and some of that language. Let's listen. This is a political war, cultural war, and it's a spiritual war. And as we go forward, we've got to get back to honoring God and country. Okay, so tell me, when you heard that, what were you thinking? I immediately recognized the language to match what sort of experts and scholars are saying is Christian nationalism. What stood out to me that night, and I was actually there not even to cover religion. It was just to help out our politics team with the primary election coverage. Hmm. But that night I also learned about Andy's uh, sort of background as the first state director for Americans for Prosperity, which is a sort of libertarian and conservative political advocacy group um, that sort of rose to prominence during the Tea Party era. And that was sort of uh, really interesting to me that he sort of started his political career in many ways around the sort of tax issue. And yet he was using you know, sort of language about a spiritual and cultural war. And um, so that kind of, in a lot of ways, was the uh, inspiration for the story where I sort of traced uh, sort of Andy's journey, but that uh, sort of similarly of other Republicans in Tennessee who kind of have a similar backstory to Andy. He's not that only politician to make that sort of jump, right? Correct. And, and you know, there, there are sort of national figures who have caught, you know, sort of headlines for using this kind of rhetoric. Um, my story also, in addition to Andy, had looked at uh, uh, several uh, Republicans uh, running for office or for reelection for uh, state House of Representatives. And what, what do you, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. what do you credit that shift in messaging to? Where did it come from? So I think I'll, I'll go back to Andy, and then I'll, I'll I'll bring up another example that I came across, where there was this. Um, so so Andy had you know this background for America with Americans for Prosperity and lobbying for lower taxes, and then later became the mayor of Murray County, where he gained attention for resisting uh, COVID nineteen public health guidelines. And there's sort of this um, anti-establishment, you know, sort of, uh, I actually have a quote from a uh, historian that I think sort of puts this, uh, puts this as sort of more succinctly than I can. Um, This is from uh, Daniel K. Williams. He's the author of, um, he's the, he's the author of uh, the, 
sorry, <laughs> um, Daniel K. Williams, he's the author of God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right. And he had said to me, you know, pro-business conservatives and Christian conservatives find a lot of common ground. They tend to see churches and Christian institutions as a good thing and the so-called woke culture as very problematic and very dangerous. And so you see this mm. sort of uh, similar spirit between uh, sort of the activism around fiscal you know, sort of conservative ideals to resisting uh, COVID-19 public health guidelines to then, you know, uh, engaging other issues such as, you know, what's being taught in public schools and LGBTQ rights. What about this rhetoric from Christian nationalists? What does it really do to worry people? Well, the in my reporting, some of the criticism was that those who are promoting Christian nationalist ideas and sort of are doing so in defense of these ideas of personal liberties are infringing on other people's rights. Mm. Um, those who are some of the candidates that I looked at don't see it that way. They see it sort of as an issue of right or wrong. Um, another example that uh, I looked at a lot, I focused on a lot in my story was State Representative Jason Zachary from Knoxville, who's been very involved in this campaign against uh, sort of gender affirming treatment at Vanderbilt uh, University Medical Center. And, you know, Representative Zachary had said to me, he's like, he's like, this doesn't even have to do with religion. And yet you're seeing that controversy appeal to uh, sort of Christian supporters. Um, a couple of weeks ago at the rally at War Memorial Plaza, uh, there was a lot of Christian imagery. And so, you know, there's this tension between, you know, uh, personal liberties and the rights of the community. Um, I'll, I'll add that sort of another, I, I spoke with a pastor in Murfreesboro who's seeing similar conflict play out. And he had, you know, he had took, taken a sort of different outlook on it where he said, at the end of the day, it's a leveraging of faith to really push personal preference. So he this is uh, Pastor James McCarroll at First Baptist Church in Murfreesboro. And, you know, he was talking to me more about sort of the dynamics of power than, you know, and sees it more uh, dealing with power than it is sort of this idea of, you know, sort of divinely inspired rights. So what are you going to keep an eye out for as you continue to cover this story? Well, I, I think the, what was the the a big part of my story that was that I, I sort of sought to explore and and sort of sort through was this idea between sort of the oldness and the newness where you know uh, you have the sort of political circumstances that have contributed to this rise in Christian nationalism those have been there for a while but yet we're also seeing this sort of new era of uh, Christian political act, 
political mobilization. So going back to uh, Daniel Williams, um, the author of God's Own Party, uh, he had he had told me that this is what he said. He said, I don't foresee the Christian right returning to what it was in the 1980s and the 1990s. I see instead this continuing to be a decentralized movement that reflects a larger national culture of conservative politics and that has individual media figures that come and go. Hmm. So you have this history of um, sort of national figures who set the agenda for the Christian right in many ways. And now, you know, you're seeing it catch more at the local level uh, through, you know, battles over school boards and hospitals, for example. Liam Adams is a religion reporter for The Tennessean. You can find the link to his story on this episode's post online at thisisnashville.org. Liam, as always, thanks for being here and thank you for your reporting. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the social construct of whiteness. How has it taken shape here in Tennessee? Join the conversation. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, we're talking about the social construct of whiteness. In the United States, it's not something that people think about every day, because for centuries, whiteness has been considered the norm or default. The idea of whiteness carries a complicated history, and it's changed shape over time. Generations ago, the Irish, Italian, and Polish were not considered to be white. But if you ask most people today, and yes, most people would define them as white. So how has that idea of whiteness evolved? And what does it look like here in Tennessee? To learn more about this, I'm excited to introduce my next guest. Tim Wise is a native Nashvilleian. He's an anti-racist writer, educator, and historian. He's the author of several books, including White Like Me, Dear White America, and White Lives Matter, Race, Crime, and the Politics of Fear. Tim Wise. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Really appreciate you being here. So, you know, I'd like to get your definition on the concept of whiteness. Oh, gosh. It should be the easiest question, and you had to ask it because now it'll be the hardest one, I think. Um, you know, whiteness is um, fundamentally a myth that was created uh, for very particular purposes um, in the 17th century, in the colonies of what would become the United States. It was not tied to any notion of science. It was not tied to any notion of a uniform European culture. Whiteness was this umbrella under which all these distinct European peoples would be gathered for the purpose of aggrandizing property and power and access and opportunity to themselves at the expense of either Africans who were brought to the colonial uh, spot for and to what would become America for labor or indigenous people whose land was being taken. So whiteness was essentially an organizing principle. It mm -hmm. was a political project, had nothing to do with the color of skin. It, you know, you're taking people who look very different and whose cultures and religions are very different and saying, well, we know you think you're Scottish and you, you think you're German and you think later you're Irish, Italian, Polish, whatever, but actually, what we need you to be now is this other thing. Um, and there was a very particular purpose that the elite of the colonies 
had in mind when they did that, which was if we can get all these folks who actually been killing each other for history, all of history, mm. hated each other, all kinds of conflicts in the old countries, so to speak, if we can get them all on the same team, then it's going to be easier to take this land and control these black folks. And so it was really a trick that was played by the elite on on really landless peasants to make them angrier at black people and indigenous people than they were at the rich people who were actually exploiting them every day. So what did that mean for these you know, penniless peasants, these people who were not included in the group, particularly of the aristocracy, what did it mean for them to suddenly be considered white or in this more privileged, preferred group of people? What it meant was that they were now going to be paid what the great sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois called the psychological wage of whiteness, right? They weren't going to necessarily own land. They certainly weren't going to have power, um, but they were going to be better off than somebody, right? And and the psychological wage is one that says, well, I might not have much, but I got more than that guy. It's it's about not being last place, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and if you think about it, it worked. I mean, here we are in the American South, where six hundred thousand people died in a civil war, um, roughly half of those uh, Confederates fighting for a system that was predicated on the ownership of other human beings, um, fighting for a government, a breakaway government that said its purpose was to maintain the system of slavery. I know we lie about it now. We say it wasn't about that. But at the time, they had no shame. They said that's what it was. Um, and yet, who did the dying? Rich people didn't die. Rich people don't go fight wars, right? Rich people mm. send poor people to fight wars for them. So you had a bunch of poor, quote unquote, white people in the South going and fighting for a system that actually didn't even benefit them. Because if you think about it, if I'm a rich landowner and I can hire you to work on my farm for a dollar a day because you charge me, or I can get a black guy to do it because I own him and I don't have to pay him anything, mm -hmm. you actually would be better off with the job and not with the system of enslavement. But these poor white people were like, yeah, I'll go fight to maintain your stuff. I'll go fight to maintain your property. Like that doesn't make sense unless you understand that whiteness was this trick that was played to make people feel superior to somebody, even as they're getting their pocket picked. Fast forward generations. I may get the quote wrong, but Lyndon Baines Johnson said, if I can convince the poorest white man right. that he's better than the richest black man, I'll have his vote forever. So right. how, how did this how did this play out here in Tennessee? Was Tennessee any different? Well, I mean, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. Um, and different parts of Tennessee, it played out differently. You know, during the Civil War, for instance, uh, East Tennessee didn't want to break away at all, had no desire to join this thing called the Confederacy. Why? Well, because East Tennessee wasn't nearly as reliant on plantation labor. It wasn't as reliant on the system of enslavement. These were mountain folks, right? And so to them, it was like, we're not, we don't want to form a new country. It's why West Virginia became West Virginia, right? The Western mm. part of Virginia was like, we don't, we got nothing to do with y'all in Richmond. Like we, we don't even, we don't get down with that. We want to stay in the union. And in the case of Tennessee, the governor had to send troops to force East Tennessee to break away, which is why it's so funny when you're like in and around Knoxville and folks are flying Confederate flags, like read a book, you know, just, mm. just read a book, Google that. Cause it makes no sense. Or if you're in West Virginia flying a Confederate flag, like what, what, what are you doing? In Middle Tennessee, it's interesting, you know, my, my family, my mom's dad's people, who were the McLeans of Western Scotland, um, you know, they came here um, uh, to, to Middle Tennessee as part of the over-mountain men who came from North Carolina and settled here, and they were among the first families of Nashville and all that. And, and like most of the people at that time who came, you know, they were owners of other human beings. They developed their whiteness, even though they had been mountain people and, and, and rural folk in North Carolina, they became this sort of 
not the elite necessarily, uh, as some were, but they were certainly this second strata of it. And to them, I think whiteness became this way to gain entry into that world. But then later, um, you know, the same thing would happen to my the Jewish side of my family. That was my my dad's dad's people who came and, you know, my grandfather grew up on Jefferson Street in the heart of the black community, because at the time when he and his family moved from Chattanooga, Jews, unless they were very wealthy, Mm. that's where you lived. I mean, that was where you were restricted and you lived in the black community, but he still got sent to the white school. They didn't send him to Pearl, which was literally down the road. They sent him to Hume Fogg, which was a couple miles away, you know, on, on, on Broadway. And so he was also imbibing whiteness. He was also being told, even though these are the people you live around, these are the people you recreate with, this is the community you know, but you're not really, you know, don't be with them. You got to be with these other people over here. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, it's not that it developed differently. It developed very similarly. The one thing that is different maybe about Nashville in particular is that Nashville spent so much time being proud of not being Birmingham that we ignored our own role in maintaining white supremacy. Because you go back to the 50s and 60s, that was the thing. Like, well, at least we're not we're not Birmingham, we're not Selma, we're not Montgomery. You know, we're not blowing things up. You don't see bombs in churches every week. Well, you know, there was a bomb at Hattie Cotton Elementary. There was a bomb at the Jewish Community Center. You know, there was there there were bombings and there was violence. But for the most part, we prided ourselves on the whole Athens of the South. Look at all these colleges. We're so educated. We had this big thing at Centennial Park where we, you know, like the pseudo World's Fair in 1890, whatever it was. We're better. But for black folks, segregation was segregation. You know, mm-hmm. for black folks, violence was violence. Institutional oppression was institutional oppression. So I think the way whiteness developed differently, it was a, to white people, it was a kinder, gentler whiteness. Mm. I'm not sure that it always felt that way to black folks. You, you know, you, you touched on something that I've, I've lived here just over a year. Yeah. And um, People are like, Nashville is the Athens of the South. And when friends who are not from here ask me to describe Nashville, I'm like, well, there's a sophisticated air that they have to it. Um, By not being the Birmingham, by not being Montgomery Mm -hmm. or Selma and having some of the more, I would say, ugly events that we remember throughout history. Right. You know, desegregation. Let's talk about because. You know, in other parts of the country, desegregation efforts were very ugly, mm-hmm. big, ugly fight. You know, we've seen images of little black girls being escorted mm-hmm. by military members and members of the police while angry white crowds mm-hmm. shout at them. Nashville wants you to believe that that didn't happen here. Yeah. But I know for a fact that it did. A former guest that we had, Janine Blackman, yeah. was on and Barbara Watson. They told us about their experiences as young children who, yeah. who went through that. You oh, know? yeah. There were there were white folks that were lining the streets with anti-busing signs. You know, I started public school here in Nashville in 1974, um, graduated in 1986, and busing didn't start till 71. So I was one of the first wave, you know, of students. Mm. But but I happened to live in a zone that was easier for busing in where I was. So I grew up in Green Hills, like a lot of white middle class kids did. And 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 the black kids that I went to school with lived like right over. Now we call it 12 South. It was just Granny White Pike when I was growing up. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't hard to for them to come over to John Trotwood Moore over over off Granny White. It was easy to go to Stokes, to go to Burton, to go to Hillsborough. So our zone there was not as much conflict. And I think people look at that and it's like a false sense of security. But if you were in other parts of the city that were much more racially divided where the distance was not just like a mile and a half or a couple of miles or in some cases a few blocks, but like miles and miles away, 
there was a lot of conflict. You had white parents that were absolutely indignant about the thought of black people coming into their community, and they didn't want to go to the black community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons that the black schools, I mean, Washington uh, Junior High School was shut down. It was probably the crown jewel of junior highs in this city. Pearl was closed. As Pearl was one of the finest high schools in the entire Southeast, but it was closed because, well, we don't want, white kids aren't going to want to go over there, and now we don't have enough demand for that school. Black teachers were laid off. Black counselors were laid off. Black principals were fired because we didn't need them all anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. we just need all these white educators. So, yeah, it didn't you didn't have bombs killing four children in a basement of the church like in Birmingham every week. You didn't have you know, Birmingham was known as Bombingham for a reason. But we did have that violence. We did have sit in protesters who were beaten and hauled away to jail. We did have the bombing at Hattie Cotton in 57. We did have the bombing at the Jewish Community Center in 58. Um, And we did have parents that were out yelling at children. It wasn't as bad, but, you know, it comes a point where if you're on a scale of one to ten of the violence and you're at a four and someone else is at a nine, if you're comparing yourself to the nine, you're missing the point. You ought to be at a zero, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that's the thing. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the social construct of whiteness with anti-racism author and educator Tim Wise. Okay, so as you were growing up here, how did you grapple with that narrative that Nashville wants to tell about the realities of about the narrative they wants to tell, but against the realities of life? Well, I was very fortunate to grow up with parents that um, I had good home training, as we say, right? So I was raised right. I went to Tennessee State for preschool, actually. So some of my earliest peers, but also authority figures were black folks, black women that ran the preschool program at TSU. Um, I learned to respect black authority, which means that when black folks are then telling me this is what's real, this is what's happening, this is what our history is, I'm not going to question that as if I know better than the person who's lived the experience. So I had that experience. I went to integrated schools. Those schools, thank God for DSEG and, 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 and integration in the schools that I attended. They're about 40 percent black uh, during the time that I was in those institutions. That was a, a very important social lesson. I played baseball and basketball on teams that were mostly black kids. I remember going in 1980 out to, I think it was Jolton, maybe Mount Pleasant, you know, 20 miles out or whatever it is from here. And my ball team went out there to play a scrimmage, baseball team, and it was mostly black kids, me and a couple other white guys. And the the guys we were supposed to play from that smaller rural area refused to play us because they mm. just, they didn't want to step on the field with black players, I guess. And they surrounded us, threatened us with baseball bats. We're calling the black kids the N-word, calling the white kids N-word lovers. And it's that kind of experience. This is 1980. This is not 1950. Uh, That's the kind of experience that lets you know that there are people who have been raised to draw a line between humanity on the basis of race. And they've decided that you, because you throw down with these kids and you play with these kids and these are your friends, that you've crossed that line. To me, that was a huge lesson about what's wrong with this country, not just the South. Because this is a problem all around the country. Uh, it's just that, you know, we, we we talk about it more because we know perhaps that race is the background noise of everything in the mm-hmm. South and everywhere else. They just don't realize it. At least white folks don't. Black folks do. But growing up in that, you you experience a little bit of what your friends are going through. You see it. I saw the mistreatment. I saw the way that teachers spoke differently to my black friends in school. I saw the way they were disciplined more harshly, even though we all acted like fools. We mm-hmm. all did the same stuff. I saw the way that the white kids I went to high school with, we would have, you know, keg parties where there were there was active drug use. Cops would come onto the property to tell us to turn down the music. And not once did anybody ever get arrested. But when you, I would talk to my black friends about that and like, why don't you come to the parties? Why do you think we don't come to the parties? You know, we're mm-hmm. not going to because we know that if, if we're there, 
there will be arrests. It will be a different thing. That's that's the kind of thing which some of which I grappled with at the time, some of which I didn't grapple with for many years later. But uh, all of that shaped me and and being a child of desegregation and integration and, and having the parents that I had, I mean, obviously helped with that. You know, when I have conversations with my African-American friends and non-white friends, you know, we often say we would rather someone show a little bit more of that overt racism from the baseball example you just gave sure. than kind of, you know, the, I'll smile on your face. I'll be real cool with you. And as soon as you leave, I'm telling a racist joke or I have right. an epithet against you. And we just did an episode not too long ago called Nashville Nice. Talks about the yeah. politeness and the gentility that happens here in the city. And, you know, I just kind of couple with that with this idea of race and how we approach it. Like some people say, don't let, let's not talk about race. Let's not talk about whiteness because it's very uncomfortable and it makes me uncomfortable mm -hmm. and I don't want you to trigger us. So how can we really begin to confront the social construct of whiteness and race yet people are sensitive and touchy about it? Well, the one thing we have to do is to make sure that those state lawmakers who in their infinite wisdom or lack thereof have decided that teachers can't talk about these things in schools, that we're not supposed to talk about. What we're talking about right now would be considered, you know, essentially unlawful by lawmakers in this state, as has been the case in, you know, a dozen other states around the country that have either passed or are trying to pass legislation to restrict the teaching of this very topic because it makes white people uncomfortable. It makes white folks uncomfortable to talk about systemic racism or to talk about history accurately. Never mind what makes black people uncomfortable, which is actual racism, actual injustice, actual inequality. So first of all, we have to grow up. And we have to demand of our lawmakers, the people who are actually passing legislation, that they have no right to dictate the terms of, of, of what we're going to talk about and, and what we're going to learn about. Because if you don't talk about those things, if you don't practice discussing racism and learning how to be uncomfortable and sit with the discomfort and move through it, then you don't exercise that muscle that you need to have those deeper conversations. And we end up feeling fragile and vulnerable. And, oh, my gosh, this makes me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have to feel this way if we had decided 20 years ago to have the conversations that we should have been having or 40 years ago or 50 years ago. The longer we kick the can down the road, the less prepared our children are going to be to have these conversations. And that clearly isn't working for anyone in this society. So what about that person who considers themselves to be a good person? You know, they may not hold racist beliefs, but mm -hmm. they rest in the comfort of their privilege. What right. can they do? What's your message to them? I, I think the, I mean, there's a lot of things and we don't have time to go through all of them, obviously. I think that for the person, look, I think most people are good people. I think what we have to recognize is that good people get caught up in bad systems, right? And and that means they're teachers who are well-intended, but they get caught up in an educational system that was not created for equity. So we have to fix that system. It isn't about changing that person. It's fixing the system. There are people who become police officers who I know go into it for the right reason. But if you become part of a system that is predicated on controlling certain people for the benefit of other people, which is what law enforcement historically has been in this society, then all of your good intentions oftentimes will come to nothing. So I think part of it is letting go of the idea that there's good and bad people. Of course there are. But the problem is institutional. Be hard on systems and soft on people. I'm willing to extend grace to people who mess up. And I think we all we all deserve a degree of grace when we mess up. We're going to say the wrong thing. We're going to do the wrong thing. We're going to screw up, right? But institutional injustice is what we ought to be focused on. And I feel like just we just don't do that enough. Last question for you. You know, what do you want people to know about the construct 
of whiteness and what they can do. Uh, they need to know that it's not real and that, you know, James Baldwin said it best about white folks. He said, as long as you think you're white, there's no hope for you. And what he meant by that was not that whiteness wasn't real as a social thing. It was. But if you actually believe in it, if you actually put more value in the color of skin um, than you do in the humanity of 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 all of society, you're doomed and you're not going to live up to what America was intended to be. We were promised that this country was one thing and it has never been that thing. So you have a choice. You either choose multiracial democracy multicultural democracy, or you choose some form of white nationalist authoritarianism. Those are the only two choices. There's no middle ground. You're either going to be white or you're going to be an American. And you can't be both because to some extent being white means violating all of the principles of America that we were raised to believe were real, mm. but have actually just been, you know, this sort of myth that we've constructed over a long period of time. Tim Wise, anti-racism writer, educator, and native Nashvilleian. I want to thank you so much for the show. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with people who are confronting their own privilege and continue to join the conversation. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about the social construct of whiteness and its history here in Tennessee. Now we want to talk about why it's important to name and talk about whiteness in the present day. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Molly Secor is the author of White Privilege Pop Quiz, a book that helps people confront their own white privilege. Molly, thanks so much for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be here. So tell me, did did you grow up thinking about whiteness and white privilege? <laughs> I did not grow up thinking about whiteness or white privilege. I didn't think about it until the mid-late 90s, really. Um, I grew up in a town where there was one black person that I knew of, and I'm pretty sure he was the only one, and he was adopted. Mm. And uh, his name was Lyle Baxter, and he was the most popular guy in school. He was voted most, you know, most funny, most handsome, the whole thing. So I grew up thinking that this French-Canadian-American town that I grew up on on the border, that there was no such thing as racism because we all liked Lyle Baxter. Um, and we talked about him at dinner and I, and I actually brought him out as a party favor. You know, I go to my friend's house who didn't go to Catholic school, which we, we had Lyle went and I went to, and I would go to my friend's house and, you know, I, and I remember the reason I, I used to do a thing called whispering black, because I remember at this one particular dinner, I was telling her about this guy at school who was really cool and he's really smart and he's a really good basketball player and he's really popular and, um, and he's black. Mm. And I whispered it at the dinner table at my friend's house when I was probably 11. Okay. Um, so I knew enough back then to whisper the word black. I didn't know why I did it, but I did. So what was the moment or the experience that got you on this track that you're on now? Oh gosh. Okay. There's, there's probably two experiences. One is one of those, I was on my 
way on the airplane to move to Nashville, Tennessee, to be with the man that I came here to be with and eventually married. Um, and I was on the plane. I had never visited Nashville. He was moving here. I was coming here to be with him. I was on the plane, and I, in my head I was going, what the heck are you doing moving to Nashville, Tennessee? I'd never been south of the Mason-Dixon line. Okay. And I heard a voice come through as quick as I asked the question that said, there's a lot of work around racism, and that's what you're going to do. And I was kind of shocked. And three years later, I was working at a nonprofit with at-risk teens. And I noticed that 90-some percent of the people that we were serving were non-white. And the counselors and the helpers, about 87 percent were white women. And that's when I began to start asking why is this? And I went to the Race Relations Institute that summer. I took my summer vacation and went there, and that's where I met Tim Wise. Mm -hmm. I met Dr. Ray Winbush, Naomi Tutu, and it was the beginning of a long uh, season, I would say, many years of me sort of breaking down this thing called whiteness. So as you've been spending these seasons breaking down this construct of whiteness. What does that look like for you? How have you come to grapple with some of those maybe whispering black moments that you've had? Well, for me, I, because I'm a writer, I've written about them. So for about 10 years, I wrote columns for the Nashville City Paper, the, um, the Tennessean, uh, Nashville Scene. Then I was a columnist for the Huffington Post. So my way of working this out was through writing and bringing it so that other people could wrestle with me. Mm -hmm. um, and that was basically, and my the book, The White Privilege Pop Quiz, is really just 20 years of wrestling. I came up with 13 questions that I'd never asked myself. And I thought, okay, maybe this will be valuable. I'm not a scholar. I'm not an academic. I wrote from a place of um, inquiry. I, I wanted to know what was this thing called whiteness and, and how did, you know, how did it unravel and how did or how to unravel it? But how did it show up every day when I didn't see it? Mm -hmm. And when in the very beginning, I ran into at the Race Relations Institute at Fisk. I spoke to a woman named Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, who was a black psychologist, very prominent. And she spent about 30 minutes with me in the lobby. This was my entry into this. I was one of the very few white people at this conference. And she said, so now that you understand that you have white privilege, what are you going to do about it? Hmm. And I stammered and stuttered. And I, I, I started, well, well, you know, I mean, my family, you know, my parents divorced and we were had public assistance. So I didn't really have white privilege. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and that's where I was starting. And I went home every night of that conference in tears because I was being confronted with things that I had never, I perceived myself a hip white artist, white woman. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I was welcoming of everyone and everybody. And I had a, I didn't know how much work I had to do. My next guest has been working to confront their own privilege over the years. David Dark is an associate professor of religion and the arts at Belmont University and the author of the upcoming book, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. And Danielle Simpler is a Nashville resident and mother of two. I want to thank you both for being with us today. Um, David, let me ask you, you're a Nashville native as well. Yes. And I understand you really started thinking about whiteness differently after you saw a particular set of movies. Is that right? Yes, I I saw Mississippi Burning, which turned me around a little bit. I had grown up, I went to Franklin Art Academy, 
which was lovely, but I came to understand that Franklin Road Academy here in Nashville started out as a segregation academy. Mm. And it was probably Mississippi Burning that got me thinking harder about Confederate symbols and that kind of thing. And then I saw Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing at Vanderbilt Surratt Cinema in 1989. There was a panel discussion, and it happens that Spike Lee's sister, Joe Ely, was in the cast, as was Giancarlo Esposito. It was a predominantly black audience, and Giancarlo Esposito um, expressed gratitude for who he referred to as the sisters and brothers in the audience. And then he said he wanted to see more sisters and brothers in the film industry. Mm. I was 19, and I felt—this is a memory that I should say has surfaced in recent years as I've tried to make sense of things— I felt a little triggered by that, and I got to thinking that during the Q&A, I would say, I would stand up and ask Giancarlo Esposito, after praising the film, I would say, am I a brother, and if not, why not? I did not have the courage to ask that question, but I did, and this is a confession, I'm ashamed of this now, I did recount the story to people. It became a kind of rhetorical flex that I now understand to be a form of white grievance. Mm -hmm. I should say as well, I never told that story to black people because I wasn't interested in being vulnerable in that way. And um, as I try to figure out how we are where we are, I'm 52, lifelong Nashvilleian. I can well understand that if I, if my identity had gone south, as it were, and if I had become someone who could channel white grievance um, with something of the passion that I felt in 1989, I understand how whiteness could become a form of currency in accruing cred and coin in the state of Tennessee. Mm. Thank you for sharing that story. Now, Danielle, was race something your family talked about when you were growing up? It was not. Um, my biological father was openly racist, and I grew up feeling very uncomfortable um, about that. And I believe it also made my mother feel uncomfortable as well. I remember the comments, and it was something that I grew up knowing that I wanted to do differently. Well, so when did you start your journey, and how? Um, I would say... My late teen years was when I really realized I wanted to do things differently. And then I had my son when I was 20 and having this human in my life that I was responsible for raising, I knew that I wanted to educate him from the beginning and to make sure that he grew up to be a conscious human um, that was educated on race and that used his privilege for, for good. You know, that he acknowledged it and that he did something. So as, as you're entering this journey of understanding whiteness, understanding race, understanding your privilege, what did you come to recognize initially? Like, what did you realize about the world that you hadn't before? I realized how many of us are, are racist. <laughs> You know, and we don't even realize it. And I think that's something that I really 
um, appreciated about Molly's book and the pop quiz is just facing these things that we don't recognize in ourselves without, you know, it being brought to our attention. And I found that to be really eye-opening and I was ashamed. Mm. That's something David expressed as well. It's, it's, it's a, I imagine with anything, it's not just, obviously I'm not white, but there's rooms of my existence that I have to question and ask myself and come to recognize where, oh, Khalil, you might not be on the right side of this. This is something that you can learn. And there is some little level of shame that comes in. Molly, yeah, I want to ask this to Molly, you know, as we are going through these changes and these these moves of self-evolution, so to speak, how can we, I don't want to say ameliorate the pain and from, from really messing with us, but how can we come to, to be comfortable with that pain, with that discomfort, so we can become this better person we're aspiring to? I, I think it's a great question. And I'm not sure that, I'm not sure it's about getting comfortable so much with the pain, but accepting the pain Mm. Um, and accepting that, yes, this is a very painful thing to acknowledge in in the very beginning when you're looking at this stuff. But again, we have to realize that, and I agree that, that we are all, for me, I think that I am racist. I'm going to be less racist by the time I die. But from where I started, it was, it's in the water. I mean, it's, it, we're indoctrinated because this is the culture. This is the so- society. Um, and unless you have the intent and the dedication to undo it, and it is something that needs to be undone because this is systemic. It's not a personal thing. It's systemic. Racism is a tool that upholds white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And it's very, I mean, it's very simple when you look at it. I mean, it's, it's very, it's complex the way it plays out, but it's very simple in its intent and its, and its origins. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of, you know, we have to recognize that whether we're talking about alcoholism or addiction or racism, guilt and feeling bad and self-loathing serves no purpose whatsoever. Um, you can feel self-conscious and, and yes, of course, there's going to be feelings of, um, you're, you're going to feel sad. You're going to feel when you realize the part that perhaps you've played, but there's no room for it. I mean, the whole idea is for us to move better and higher and be all that we are meant, you know, that we came here to be. So there's not really, and I think sometimes people use guilt as a way to not do it. It's a way to dig your heels in resistance. Mm. Now, David, how are you talking to people about whiteness these days? Um, I want to speak of whiteness as something that I am divesting from, that I believe I'll be divesting from for the rest of my life. And I want to encourage folks, maybe through my own example, to see what's on the other side of shame. Um, shame is is toxic. Shame is abuse in a way. But if I'm not willing to risk ashamed feelings, I'm not willing to entertain the moral realizations that can help me evolve and be a more full, undivided human being. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, a conversation I was having, particularly with a lot of friends in 2020 after George Floyd, talking about whiteness, talking about racism. And you mentioned this a little bit, Molly. You know, if you're born and raised in America, you're going to be a little bit racist. You're going to be a little bit misogynist. I mean, because it is in the water supply and in the soil. How 
how did whiteness, how does that play out differently for white women as opposed to white men? And how does that kind of perpetuate this myth that we have? That's a great, that's a great question and a great point. You know, and it's comp, it's complicated and it's, and it's hot Mm -hmm. (laughs) because white women have played this, this role of uh, we've, been complicit historically. There was a complicity um, among women at the same time as being part of the oppressed, mm-hmm. being oppressed. So again, it was that um, you know uh, you you were in alignment with the perpetrator, and so that made you complicit. And I'm sure that um, you know over the decades and centuries, I mean, it was very very difficult because there were a lot there were a lot of Women, there were white women who did not believe in slavery, <laughs> you know, who, who knew that it was wrong, but also they were married to, they were married to someone who was, um, and they had no rights. They had no, you know, they, they were beholden to the person who was, or the, the representative of, of the system. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's always been a tough, I mean, when we talk about, I, I had this conversation with someone yesterday, you know, not that long ago when there were lynchings, public lynchings. I mean, women made the picnic baskets and they went and celebrated when there was someone being lynched. So there's always been cooperation at the same time as being a victim of the system. Mm. Uh, So it's very muddy and complicated. And I think that's also something that's, you know, when we start talking about that, you know, what Tim mentioned something about seeing the angry faces as the young children walk through the neighborhoods for the first time during integration. I mean, there were men, women, children, older people, white people who were taunting and um, torturing people of color. And, um, you know, it, it were, there's, no, there's no part of, uh, there's nobody in the family that wasn't part of that. Mm. I really appreciate all of you being on the show. That's unfortunately, that's pretty much all the time we have. There's so many, so many questions, as I like to say, that we have to leave on the cutting room floor. Really appreciate you all. Hopefully we can have this conversation again. I want to thank my guests, Molly Secor. She's the author of White Privilege Pop Quiz, David Dark, professor at Belmont, and Danielle Simpler. Thanks to, again to you all for being here for this very important conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we'll talk with Democrat Dr. Jason Martin, who is running to replace Governor Bill Lee. Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Blaze Ganey. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.